Hello and welcome to Season 3 of the E3 Podcast. I'm your host, Emily Mottram. This podcast is all about building science, healthy homes, architecture, and female entrepreneurship. So prepare to get nerdy. All right, welcome back to the E3 Podcast. This week, I am super excited to have another woman in the industry on with us. Gwen, tell us who you are, what you've been up to, what you do, uh, and we'll kick it off. All right. Uh, hi, Emily. Thank you for having me today. And uh, hello to all the listeners. My name is Gwendolyn St. Sever. I also go by Gwen. Um, I'm a lifelong Vermonter. My favorite season is winter, and I'm passionate about residential designs. I've been in the construction industry for about a decade now, and I have had some really great employment opportunities. I've been an estimator. I've been an architectural designer. I've been an MEP designer and more recently a mechanical engineer. Um, I have an associate's degree in architectural and building engineering technology and a bachelor's degree in construction practices and management, both from Vermont Technical College. And I'm the owner founder of BTF Residential Designs. Well, that is super exciting. And I'm so glad to have you here um, just because you do have a diverse background. So um, not only are you in the construction industry, but you're uh, in one of my current favorite things to talk about, which is mechanical. Um, So I'm really (laughs) excited to talk to you. We've been talking more about integrated design and we love to call him the spiritual advisor of BS and beer. But Christoph Irwin said one day, it's not truly integrated design unless your mechanical team is part of the design as well. So I know you're going to bring a lot to the discussion today about marrying these things together. And uh, I've been talking to a lot of people from Vermont recently, and people are going to think I moved. So <laughs> I'm, I'm still in Maine, but I love my Vermonters. So, so tell us a little bit more about your current adventure, uh, this company that you started. Sure. Um, so BTF Residential Designs, I started in 2015, and um, in the beginning, it was kind of more architecturally based. Um, When I first started, I wanted to provide a different type of home plan, um, and I wanted to fill some of the gaps I was seeing in the stock plan market. In my earlier years, I was an estimator and a designer for a local lumber company, and uh, folks would bring in ideas and sketches and pre-purchase stock plans that they would want to build locally. And working on the ideas and sketches that people brought was really fun. Uh, Working on some of the stock plans that they had purchased was not always so fun. Uh, There was a lot of flaws in what people would buy. And um, sometimes they were bad, like the stairways wouldn't actually line up or the roof was completely unconstructible. Um, And if they were constructible and they were a good plan, they were often far larger than the client's understood. It would be like a 5,000 square foot house and they'd be like, oh, that's not what this looked like when I bought it. Um, And then none of them were really designed for a northern climate. They were all like not meant to see snow or have roof pitches or reasonable windows for up here. Uh, So that's what I first started out designing was uh, stock plans that were meant for a northern climate. And then um, I did that on the side of my regular job, like weekends and evenings. And then in my regular job at the time was a mechanical engineer and MEP designer. So I was doing that for like eight years and I started seeing, oh, I can merge as you were describing mechanical and architectural and make a really great plan package for people. And then I started seeing uh, cities and states around the country are requiring net zero. 
Um, and some of them, even 100% of homes have to be net zero by 2030. And so I started doing energy analysis and modeling and HVAC designs and selections like crazy. <laughs> and I made 16 stock plans that are net zero for almost any site in 35 different states. So pretty much if you see snow on your construction site, uh, this will be a net zero home for you. Yeah. That's exciting. Um, that is one of my biggest, you, you touched on some of my, my biggest problems, uh, with stock plans as they exist today and, uh, client understanding of stock plans as they exist. Um, Something that is beautiful that is designed for the Pacific Northwest where they get rain and not snow is lovely, but a one and a half, 12 pitch um, isn't going to shed the snow. So then we have to hold it up. So then we have to re-engineer it so that it can hold up, you know, our 90 pounds or more of snow load in our Northern climates. Right. And that beautiful, uh, all glass facade is going to be absolutely brutal to sit next to all day. Uh, can we consider triple pane? Absolutely. Uh, which direction does it face, right? Because that starts to become super critical for overheating and for underheating spaces. And all of a sudden it's now a custom design, which anytime you customize something, it just gets more expensive. So you've now negated the point of buying a stock plan because it's not buildable here. Um, and I love this whole idea. And I've been talking with several of my friends about it, about creating uh, this guild for uh, good. I like to call it the good house guild, which is uh, all about stock plans um, where several designers and architects could sell their stock plans on there, but it would be geographically located. So you could click on which climate zone you're located in and find plans that maybe are the architectural style that you would really like, but are developed for your uh, specific climate zone. And then uh, have those associated with, with the designer that did it so that you could have somebody who was your client advocate to also walk you through all the things that you need to do with your builder, right? Because as you're finding, I'm sure with your net zero plans is there are some things that you, you have to do <laughs> because if you, if you change them out for something that's standard in construction, which may not have an issue in a general plan could have a major issue in a net zero or a high performance house. And so those things just need to be reviewed. Are they achievable? Are they problems that can be solved? Absolutely. Are they sometimes problems that can be solved without a lot of changes to the plans? Absolutely. But if you don't know about them, then you very quickly get yourself into, into a problem. Um, and one of the problems um, that, that we find, uh, which I'd love to talk to you more about uh, is on the mechanical aspect is the tighter we build our homes, the more requirement we have to have for mechanical ventilation. But what happens when the owner who, once you have built the house and you give them the keys and you walk away, does not use the mechanical system, then what? <laughs> right. So, yeah. So in your experience with your stock plans that you're designing and you're building in mechanical systems and ventilation systems for these net zero houses, what are the biggest challenges that you're coming across? Sure. Um, 
Yeah, there, there's a number of challenges and what we did is try to make them as contractor friendly as possible. Um, so our plans, it's funny, the one quirk we had to do to make sure that they were really net zero is we do, did predefine a north. And so that's why I say almost every site, because some of, sometimes, you know, your site's just not accessible if this is the front of your house and this is north. Um, but so what we did to design around that is make almost every side of the home very aesthetically pleasing. <laughs> so, you know, front of the home might be pretty from a couple different angles. Um, and then to the, so we have the architectural side of our plan set, but we do include fully mechanical plans as well. And so we have um, the HVAC side of ventilation is um, something that we mold over for a while. And I think that's something that you're seeing, like, like the owner might not use it, especially if you tie your energy recovery unit into a bathroom fan that nobody ever turns on. And so to mitigate that, we decided to, to, to do a 24 seven system. And um, so we have an energy recovery unit and different spots throughout the home where it meets all of the codes and standards for, for the number of air changes and, and CFM based on you know, the square footage and occupancy of the homes. And that system runs 24 seven. And it's amazing because it's just, it's basically a little fan and a plate, you know, where you have the heat transfer happening across the air pads. So it really doesn't draw that much energy. Um, and then wherever we have a bathroom that has a shower or a tub, we specified a second exhaust fan that would be used by the owner just to get the humidity out of the space. Um, and the tightness of the homes, that's, that's one last thing that we decided to add in um, was uh, kind of like a paragraph just to take into consideration, you might need to put in a dehumidification unit in these tight homes, especially if you're somebody who likes to boil, you know, a lot of vegetables, or if you, you dry your laundry in the home, that's an, an astronomical amount of moisture that you're putting into the space that's really dependent on the user and the occupant. Yeah, user and occupant data is the is the biggest thing. Um, in fact, with us writing the pretty good house book and talking about um client education and verification, right? So these are two things that I think get kind of left off the end of a project. And verification is usually for whomever is part of the team to come through and just make sure that all your systems are working properly. That's been probably one of the bigger uh, issues with ventilation specifically is that, you know, depending on how they can condition the system at the end, is it actually giving you all of the things that it's supposed to by code? So for your stock plans, and this makes a lot of sense for your stock plans, you decided to say, we're going to have, you know, a recovery ventilator, but we're also going to have exhaust fans because you, you can't guarantee if you're not going to be on site to commission the system, that the system is then working where in theory, a bathroom fan and, and let's be honest, hopefully it is ducted to the exterior. Um, I have seen my fair share of them ducted to the attics. Please stop doing this. <laughs> Agreed. Yeah, don't do it. <laughs> but in theory, if it's ducted to the exterior, it's going to work until it doesn't work anymore, right? Until its lifespan is up. But And most people kind of understand that. I think the client education part of it is actually just more important. So you've commissioned the HRV or ERV system to work. You know that it's pulling the CFM in the different places where it's required and necessary. And now you have instructed to the homeowner, this is what your system is and how you're going to use it. And I keep telling uh, people this, and 
one day someone's going to get rich off my idea. Um, I don't have time to do it myself, um, but is we need a QR code on our mechanical room doors that a homeowner could click on the QR code. It'll update all, it'll upload all the user manuals to a folder. It will add uh, maintenance schedules into their calendars as reminders to, you know, change filters or, uh, you know, have the exterior compressor. If you have a heat pump, uh, have it cleaned or whatever. And it'll tell you what systems you have and who to call if you have an issue with it and give you maintenance schedules. Um, and I'm, I'm probably that. like <laughs> on my soapbox here. Cause I just keep repeating this over and over again, but we don't buy cars and expect to never do any maintenance to them. So why would we buy a house and expect to never do any maintenance to the systems that are part of it? Um, and so I really think this idea of a QR code inside the mechanical room, because then if you sell the house, the next person then has access to it. They can update that if they put in a new mechanical unit of some sort. Um, and it just seems like the owner's binder that like is going into the future. You can do it for, um, you know, your homeowner's insurance, right. Where you can walk around and you can take pictures of all the things in your house. <laughs> so it should be just as easy with smartphones everywhere to have this yeah. piece of equipment. That's like, what is in my house and how do I use it? <laughs> Absolutely. Oh, you can market that to commercial projects too. Cause the majority of my experience is commercial. Um, yeah, that would be great. <laughs> it doesn't surprise me that the majority of your experience is commercial, that you've ended up in this residential plus mechanical world, because I think part of the reason why we personally do coordination drawings in my office is because I did commercial projects where coordination drawings were, um, I don't want to say more critical than residential because it's important in residential people just don't do it. Um, yeah. so there's too much figure it out in the field in residential, which is a little unfortunate. Um, but in commercial, uh, expanded by, uh, the amount of mechanicals that you have could be a huge budget number if something doesn't yeah. fit somewhere or. Oh, exactly. <laughs> and figure it out in the field ends up a finger pointing thing. Cause there's more than one contractor on the site. Yeah. Right. Right. So, so it's, it's interesting to hear that your, your experience was in doing, uh, well, first just mechanical aside, but also in doing a lot of commercial work where, um, they've learned the value of figuring it out on paper and knowing that things go together. Um, absolutely. I yeah. Bite the Frost has um, been my my part-time side hobby since 2015. So my day job is all commercial. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah for so, sure. Yeah. <laughs> so, so tell me a little bit more about your stock plans because um, I, as I mentioned with the Good House Guild, I think this is a great way for people who um, don't want to or can't afford to do a fully custom residential design to get a better design that meets a lot more of their needs that maybe needs they don't know they have because they don't know any different, right? Maybe it's just an expectation of professional practice that the person you hire is going to give you the best that's out there. I don't know exactly. Um, <laughs> but tell me more about your, your, your plan sets and do you stay involved when someone buys a set from you to walk them and their contractor through it? Or is it simple? They can buy it off your website and, you know, they get the, the set as is. 
Sure. So um, building up my business and was mostly custom projects. So I do do a few um, custom designs here or there, uh, be it, you know, a barn or a renovation or an apartment that meets your town zoning. Um, the plans are just buy it off the website and go. Um, for my business insurance purposes, I don't get involved in the construction, which is too bad because I love getting involved with the commercial construction part. So I would love to be more, but uh, not yet. <laughs> um, so the plans I designed to be really exactly as you're describing, filling, filling that gap to make net zero easier for contractors who are maybe already doing net zero or want to get into it. And I think getting into it is gonna become a bigger thing in the future. Um, just by, you know, states, codes, and requirements. Um, so the, the plan set has the typical architectural drawings that help you build the home, and then there's seven or eight mechanical drawings, and those walk you through the entire process of becoming a DOE net zero energy ready home. And so that'll, I have like all of the ASHRAE locations, and it'll help you figure out what climate zone your home is in. And then based on your climate zone, it'll say, okay, this is going to be your heating load on every single room, BTU per square foot. And, and um, you know, what sort of, I actually pre-sized equipment and, and offered, hey, here's a vendor and here's like four more vendors. Um, and the idea is that you have, I've designed them on a set R value and set geological locations based on ASHRAE, but the in-betweens I wanted to be contractor friendly. So I designed my R values um, as a two by six wall with a zip, zip R uh, insulated um, sheathing. And that was a, an R34 wall. And I, you know, if a contractor has a different way to do it or they live in a place with termites, you know, they have a different wall assembly, that's fine. As long as it meets an R34, the rest of the mechanical drawings and sizings all works with it. Um, and there's a few other little, you know, like insulation under the slab and, and the R values for the roof. And I specified what, what windows we chose um, for our, our energy calculations. And so it's supposed to be just contractor friendly. And I fully believe the best house you can get is when you have a site in mind and you hire an architect and you really do the custom, like that is the best way to go. But contractors can't necessarily always afford it. Homeowners can't always afford it. And maybe it's just too scary to build if they went that direction. Um, so yeah, it's just trying to fill a gap and build more energy efficient homes for people. Well, and I think there, um, what we sort of forget um, in, in the built environment too, is, is there are levels, right? And if we continue to provide customization without providing the environmental aspects that we need to be warm or comfortable or healthy in our home, then, then we're sort of missing a mark, right? We constantly hear like, oh, construction is too expensive. Um, but one of the best ways to cut down on some of the construction costs is to stop customizing everything. So, so I agree, obviously as an architect, we do custom designs for specific sites. Like if you have a tight site or you have a geologically difficult site, or you are in the County of Maine, which is basically Canada and you've got, you know, like 12 feet of snow every year or whatever, there are just different considerations for how you build. And, um, th this is terrible, unpopular opinion, but, uh, if you, if you can't afford to build something that would be comfortable to live in, in Maine, why build it? Right. <laughs> and so I, that, that's sort of a silly thing, but, um, 
but we do. They're important. Our homes are where we live and grow and, and make decisions that shape our whole lives. Yeah. <laughs> well, and, and we look at our existing housing stock, right? And we look at the things that were built in the 1800s that didn't have a stitch of insulation in them. And we're talking about, you know, legislation now and getting money into the state to weatherize and improve the efficiency of these houses that we've had forever because we don't live the same way anymore, right? We we have evolved to being comfortable in our homes, heating our homes with a point source heating system, whether it's oil, gas, or electric. Um, you know, we're, we're for the most part, not cutting down the back 40 to burn wood in our wood stoves and freeze and throw another blanket on, right? Like we don't, we don't live that way anymore. Um, one, we don't own the back 40 and a lot of those <laughs> 1800s farmhouses were huge and they've been cut up into multi units, right? And they just, none of them are doing kind of the, the right things. And so even though some people are adverse to some of the more stringent energy codes, we started to find out that that's what we're, we're tolerant of, you know, being comfortable in these spaces, having healthy indoor air quality, like what's in all of these building materials. Like you can buy a nutrition label on the food that you eat, but you can't get that on the building materials that you put into your house. And so people are starting to think after this last year and a half about the indoor air quality of their houses and everything. And so I feel like the pre-designed plan sets are a great way to bridge the gap, right? It's not just a stock plan that you maybe bought online that's not geographically appropriate for where you're building, but it's also not custom. And there are plenty of sites out there that a non-custom house will still work beautifully for. And, you know, especially as you said, you designed each house to be as aesthetically pleasing on each side so that there is some ability to flip-flop or or spin it around as far as approach to to the house so that it still looks good from all sides because you know in a custom residential design you might have an ugly side of the house and it's almost always the north side if you can get it to work <laughs> that way and you group all of your mechanicals back there so you don't see them and maybe that side of the house doesn't have as many windows and you know you can prove the the performance or whatever on that side of the house but that doesn't really work with a stock plan because you might need that side to be the front right <laughs> and so um <laughs> Yeah, it's it's always the challenge is that not customizing it doesn't always work for a site. Um, but at the same time, customizing it will always add more cost. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's all of those things are 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 it's super interesting that those are on your mind because those are things that we took into account too. Um and so, so I always like to say that our plans are, are space, energy, and resource efficient. And um, space, I guess I'll start with the energy one. So the, the, the energy efficient, no, I take it back. I'm going to start with the resource efficient because um, that reminded me of exactly what you're saying with, with making customizations adds cost and time and material. And um, that's one thing that we, we started to really consider early on is as few bump outs or, or complicated angles, even dormers, we tried to avoid as much as possible. Um, because when you have a straight wall and you break it up for just like a, a decorative feature, 
that's material waste. You have to cut down every single board to make that small little transition. And, and there's another seam where you might get water or, you know, bugs or something in the future that, that'll degrade or shift. Um, and it, it adds complication like labor time as well. So, so resource efficiency, um, is definitely something that, that we looked at as well. And then, um, Space-wise, we, it was funny, when we did all of our energy modeling and calculations, it ended up being like, okay, well, let's shift this, you know, a couple feet this way, or we'll make the building more narrow, or we'll move this window. And we did tweaks and changes for years to try to get the right shape and size. And as we were doing that, it turned out that historical homes their general shape and size was remarkably efficient energy-wise. So a lot of our plans look like capes or colonials or little farmhouses. Um, just we reduced the square footage a good bit. Um, none of our plans are, are more than, I think, 1830, maybe 1840 square feet is our biggest plan. And we've got four bedroom homes with offices. Um, so, so we took a lot of time to be really conscious of the space inside because a beautiful historical farmhouse, you know, it made sense to us that they'd want to not chop down as much wood in the back 40 as they needed to, to heat it, you know? <laughs> so it made sense to us that the symmetry and the rectangular clear cut angles made sense. And the challenge was those homes didn't necessarily have bathrooms or kitchens. So the layouts that we have inside are completely different than what you would see in an older home, but the exterior looks like a beautiful historical shape. Um, so we call it energy space and resource conscious. <laughs> yeah. There's so many things that are important there. Um, and one of those things and you talked about it and I, I mentioned a lot is like, there's a reason why a lot of passive houses are cubes right? Yeah. <laughs> like the, not only, and, and you touched just a hair on it about resource efficiency with like every bump jog and uh, dormer through the roof is it's, that's a problem for resource efficiency. And like you mentioned, it's a problem for water infiltration, but it's also a problem for energy efficiency. Every bump or jog is a corner that's difficult to insulate. It's difficult to air seal. It's difficult in general. And so what we tried to do, you know, especially with some of our semi-customizable plan sets is start with the cube and then add details to the exterior of it that aren't, um, that aren't related to the efficiency of the structure so much. I mean, a little bit. Yes. So we have a traditional farmer's porch on the front of the house. That's only five feet deep because that allows us to take in the optimal amount of sunlight in the winter time and minimize the amount of sun that comes in, in the summertime. So it is a very specific purpose, but it also takes that cube of a farmhouse and makes it look beautiful because who doesn't love a porch, right? <laughs> and so, you know, there are all these kind of little design elements that you can, can work into it. And that if for budgetary purposes, you needed to not build part of it right away, you can always add a porch on. What you can't do is add more insulation. So your minimum are 34 wall, no matter how you decide to achieve this, you have to have a, a minimum of R34 wall is so critically important because that's the part you can't change afterwards. I mean, yes, in theory, you could add exterior insulation to a house that doesn't already have exterior insulation if you have to replace the siding. But depending on how they did their roof overhangs, that's not always possible. And so 
as kind of a reminder to people, the building envelope is really the most critical part. And then everything else after that is slush. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yep. That's great. <laughs> I had um I had a professor in college that that was one of our very first courses of building sciences of any sort. And uh he 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 got up and he's like, What do you do when you're cold? And everyone's like, I don't know, we kind of like huddle and put our arms around like we 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 shrink, you know? And he goes, You reduce your surface area. And that's really the key is a square house is reduced surface area that's the most efficient shape is square and rectangular and as as close to even all around yeah well and part of the reason um people will say well oh you know we always say it's it's always cheaper to build a second floor than it is to build wider right because you're reducing your surface area but what they don't take into account there is the places where you lose heat and i always use the analogy what do you do when you go out in the winter time you put on a hat and you put on boots always, right? <laughs> the jacket is great, but the hat and the boots are critical. And so when you create a cube and you create a second floor, and this is getting real deep into some building science, the heat loss through your walls is significantly less than it is through the bottom and the top of your house. And so if you create a cube, you have less attic and less basement. So you've reduced those two critical places where you lose a ton of heat. And that's part of the reason why a second floor is is better. Um, but the other reason for that is if you have less roof and less foundation, that's also cheaper. It's usually easier to build walls than it is to add more roofing or add more foundation. Um, and so I love that none of your plan sets are bigger than like 1800 ish square feet. Um, we've gotten caught in the trap of, of everybody wants 2,500 square feet, but the reality is everybody wants square footage that works, which means they want rooms where there's a place to put a bed against a wall that isn't in front of a window. They want a kitchen that has enough cabinetry to hold the pieces that they, that they own. Um, pretty much everybody wants open concept now at this point, which um, my buddy Lloyd Alter would argue is the worst thing because the stuff we cook in the kitchen is really terrible for our health. <laughs> so our kitchens, they were really smart back in the old farmhouses because they decoupled the kitchens from the original house, right? They had a summer kitchen or an outdoor kitchen and um, they could do all that stuff. But that's not how we live now. You know, we entertain. I know at my house, people are always in my kitchen, right? Like we don't, we have living room furniture. We hang out in the living room occasionally, but we always hang out in the kitchen when we, so, so, you know, in some ways they want open concept, but then you don't have any walls. So you have to be real careful about like, where does your furniture fit and how do you place that in here? And so they just want a really well-crafted product. And so what you've done with your pre-designed plans is thought through all of that beforehand. Yes. Like where do the doors yeah. go? Where do the windows go? Where does the furniture go? Where does all of this stuff and how does it work? And that's my other biggest problem with you had said, you know, people would come in and they were unbuildable. Um, but I've also seen lots of plan sets that are unlivable. Like there, <laughs> yeah. was, there was one house that we toured, um, up here when we were looking to buy our house and it looked beautiful from the exterior, but I couldn't fit a single piece of the furniture I already owned in this house. There was just nowhere to put it. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> so, that's so, that's so well described. Yep. <laughs> yeah. The, the open layout thing, um, is something 
I think it's great as you're describing it's it's been part of you know our our history and and our present and probably future homes everyone likes the open concept and um, most of ours are I would say open concept and the way we took the approach is is open concept is as you described important in like the living in the dining and the kitchen area that's where we spend majority of our time and our lives and socializing with family and friends but open concept doesn't need to go into the laundry room or into the bedroom. So, you know, the way we looked at it is there's the central open concept with smaller utility spaces around it. And those utility spaces for us always included an entryway because that really protects your home from, from outdoor contaminants. Um, and it also kind of protects your guests from, from being, you know, feeling unwelcomed or, or, you know, jumping into like a huge social group while you're taking your boots off can be kind of overwhelming. Um, and also when there's, you know, they're in your home, you, they don't need to see your dirty clothes, you know, on the pile on the floor in your bedroom. That part doesn't need to be in the open concept design at all. Um, and yeah, that was the, the door swings. I think we spent the most time on door swings, like exactly as you're describing. If we move a door foot, you can put a dresser in two places. Or if we put the door exactly in the corner, there's no place for your dresser and your layout for your room is horrible. <laughs> or that, you know, that I, I want to put a, a door here and I want it to swing in here and I want to put a door here and I want it to swing in there. And it's a, okay, well, you realize when you put a door and it's a swinging door, right? Because we've been known to use pocket doors, which some people are pro pocket doors. Some people are, are anti pocket door. Um, but in some cases where you have really small spaces, they're critical because if it swings into the room, you now have lost three feet of space. So wherever that's going to go, there can't be anything else there. And so if we've made them really small, we've reduced the amount of stuff that you can ha have in, in that area afterwards. And people um, have a tendency not to understand the scale of a space without there being furniture in it. So if they tour an empty house, right, this is part of the reason why um, lots of people recommend that you stage a house for, for selling it because empty houses don't make any sense to people because they can't identify the space uh, when it's empty. And then they bring in their furniture from their previous house and they realize the couch they owned was like huge because they had this big great room and now it's in a small regular size living room. It's like, oh my gosh, this couch is massive. <laughs> and so, <Yeah. laughs> and, and when you go to a showroom or a furniture showroom, those spaces are, are really big because they're scaled in proportion to the open space. Right. And so that's when it gets really important, even in pre-designed plan sets to understand the scale of the space. You can't have really tall, narrow spaces. They just feel awkward, you know? And if you have this open concept, you have to have enough headroom that that doesn't feel like a squashed bowling alley. And you know, you walk into Walmart or Lowe's or, or something, you don't realize their ceilings are like 30 feet tall. It doesn't feel that tall to you because of the scale of this, but it's just like one giant open space. And so it's much taller. And so scale and proportion then start to get really important, which is, I find one of the hardest things about matching the old styles, the capes, the farmhouses, um, from previously where they were built with dimensional framing that was maybe like a two by six, but an actual two by six with old growth wood that had like really great structural properties to now wanting to do the open web floor truss open concept. 
idea. Now we've gone from having six inches floor to floor to 18 inches. And like, oh no, all of a sudden this thing got taller. How do I make this feel the right proportion and scale? And I think that is one of the defining factors of a really great, well done plan set is you've worked out what the scale needs to be so that it looks correct to, to the yeah. egress windows being big enough, but not dwarfing the elevation with their like giant window scale. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, and that was one of the things I, I remember being my biggest pet peeve is people would buy floor plans or even floor plans marketed online. They would show the furniture and it was not real. It was the, you know, your chair would have been a foot by one foot. Like it wasn't a real size chair. And that was one of the things that we made sure is all of the furniture we draw is to scale. And they're like large to scale. So every bed's always a queen size bed and every couch is always six feet long or more. <laughs> so, so yeah, it's, it's so important to be able to visualize your space. And as you're describing, like the, the ceiling heights is the absolute hardest thing to visualize when you're drafting. And drafting in 2D especially. Um, so so earlier on, we we found this really cool software. I forgot the name of it and it was free at the time. So um, it was over in Europe and I uploaded my floor plans and they would convert them into a 3D model overnight because it was European time. And so I'd wake up in the morning and be like, oh, I can walk through my home. And exactly as you're describing, after doing that, it was, oh, I need to widen this, this hallway more. Although it's already four feet wide, it doesn't look right. I'm going to make it six, you know? And um, it, it was so helpful doing that. Um, because it's just, it's hard to see sometimes. Yeah. Well, and helpful for you as the designer, but critical for, for, um, any homeowner. And, and like you said, um, being worried about paying to have something custom built that you don't understand. And then you, you know, you get to the end. I think, um, I nearly had a heart attack once I had, um, a client say to me at the end of a project, does it look the way you, the, the way you thought it would? And I was like, yes. Does it look the way you <laughs> thought it would? Right. And they, they were like, no, but it's even better. And that was kind of the aha moment, um, early on in my career where I was like, 3d is now just essential because I don't want to get to a point where we thought everyone was on the same page and we were making decisions based on that. And that somebody on the team didn't understand what we were doing or what that looked like. And so we started doing a lot more 3d, which is still not even the same as physically walking through the space. Um, and I always, I always tell clients like during construction, the scale of your house is going to change several times. Like the lot will look huge and then they'll pour a foundation and it'll look like the tiniest thing. And then they'll put walls up and it'll look massive. And then they'll put sheetrock up and it'll look really small again. And then they'll paint it and put your furniture in and it'll come back, you know, so like the scale really changes throughout the whole, the whole part of construction. So I try to prepare them for, for that. But the 3D models were were just critical. It's critical to understand what something looks like in proportion. And 2D just doesn't cut it for a client. And you know, as you're saying, as a as a designer as well, it's also really important. Like, does this feel the way I thought it was going to, and how I want to experience it? Yeah. And I wish I was better at 3D to be honest, which is why I was so glad they they offered this free service at the time. Um, that's, I think one of the biggest challenges is getting into the 3d having come from, you know, a decade of, of 2d world. Yeah. 
we're all going through it, luckily. <laughs> yeah, we're all going through it. And that is one of the great benefits of technology now is that there are a lot of people coming out of school, you know, 10, 15, 20 years after I graduated that have skills that I didn't know then. Right. And so I've, I've gotten much better at it over the course of my career where I really start to understand those things, but that new people that we might hire now coming into the field, bring this 3d skill with them as just, I mean, they're just taught differently. And so we have so much to teach them about the way that, that we learn. And I still think it's really important to, to hand draw some stuff and to understand what you're drawing. Cause the, the zoomy 3d stuff looks beautiful, but it's not always buildable. <laughs> right. Yes, and so there yes. is, there's this connection in between, just like you said, between the mechanical and the architectural plans, but then there's also between the tools and knowing what you're going to build. And so the 3d stuff is a brilliant tool to explain and understand space, but is not a, a supplement for physically or completely understanding how to build it. So like you're, you're doing the cost estimating and the like knowing how many number of two buys you need for certain things. Like those are things that you can learn to do over time, but isn't inherent in a drafting program. You have to know you need to draw that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so. I think that's great. And and advice for anyone getting into the industry for sure is is whoever's learning on these these beautiful 3D programs right now, don't always trust them. So like, I mean, I've probably drawn ductwork systems on over, I don't know, 150 commercial projects now. And the way majority of that was done is ductwork was a single line and another single line and there was no dimension to it at all you were forced to visualize it and see it in the field. And, and now when, when I use like Revit to draw a piece of ductwork, it'll make these connections automatically. And they're not the right ones. Like the airflow just doesn't work as well in that elbow that it just automatically chose. Whereas if it was a single line drawing that I'd be working on, I'd know exactly what sort of, you know, elbow connection I want to make um, or transition or whatnot. So always question why and what, pieces it fills in for you. <laughs> well, exactly. Right. Because when you were doing it or you drew a line and you knew where it went and you came to a piece of structural, you'd be like, oh, wait a second. This is a piece of structural here. It's probably got some sort of depth. Does it go below the ceiling? Do I need to create a chase or a soffit? Like where does it, like your ductwork doesn't just poke a hole through the middle of it and keep going. Like, I mean, <laughs> right. in an ideal world, sure. Hey, great. Yeah, that was one of the things. And that was when I learned how important it was to, to do mechanical. We were doing actually a big commercial project and the structural and the mechanical were done by two, two different firms, obviously. Um, and they did not coincide with each other at all. So there were pieces that went through sections of firewalls and structural pieces that like, there's just no way that that piece can go there. Like it just physically can't. Right. And, you know, by, by being able to do those drawings and coordinate that and look at that with the architectural, you could say, Oh, wait a second. Like we can't get this. Like the ductwork is actually outside of a wall. So your vent <laughs> is showing blowing this way, but that's not blowing into that room. And, you know, and so 
you, you learn to kind of identify those things as you see them where, like you said in Revit, if it like auto programs it for you, like it might know there's a piece of structural and it might put an elbow there, but if you don't catch what it plugged in, then all of a sudden your flow rates are off or the architect comes back to you and is like, that can't drop below the ceiling. I don't want to see that. Right. Like <laughs> we're not doing a soffit. Yeah. You're not doing a soffit here. There's no room to put, you know, a vertical chase in this section. Um, yeah. And so it becomes so critical and important or, uh, you know, for your residential projects, it's, um, if the plumbing has to go in this wall, then your ventilation cannot also go in this wall. Like there's, <laughs> there's a point at which all of these things don't fit in this one six inch space. And so you do end up with soffits and vertical chases. And, you know, that's when figure it out in the field ends up with like a water heater that's on the whole other side of the basement that doesn't meet the DOE requirements for a length of pipe that you have to try to get to your net zero home. <laughs> right. Yeah. And so. that's one thing I'm so thankful for. And I think really the only reason it was possible to even make these net zero plans possible is because of the diverse background I've had in seeing those systems, seeing, you know, um, this, you know, the, the wood structure side of things and the mechanical side of things and the plumbing side of things and, and being able to, to really understand what goes in each space. Um, I think that like, I, I can't be the only one doing this. There has to be somebody else who's, who's made, you know, stock zero plans for, for somewhere. Um, and I've seen, I've seen somebody do it for passive homes in a small geographical area. Um, but like, if you were to hire, a, you know, a couple of firms to design a stock zero plan, it would take thousands of hours. And that, even myself, I did the numbers this spring. It was something like 6,000 hours in the last few years to develop just 16 plans. And, you know, if you're going to hire a firm to do that, that's 6,000 hours is a lot of money. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and I think that that's one of the things that that doesn't get reflected, right? So everyone wants to be able to buy a stock plan for really cheap. Like we want it to be more cost-effective for you, but it can't be really cheap, right? Because you're, you're fronting as those 6,000 hours in hopes that someone will buy one of those plans, right? And so you have to sell that plan a certain number of times to recoup the investment that you personally put into it, right? And so they have to be, more cost-effective than having it totally custom designed, but they can't be customizable because that just adds cost. I mean, sure, they could pay you to customize it. Absolutely. But that's an additional cost. Like you can't get that as part of your plan set. Um, that's an additional cost as part it's of a it. New energy you. model. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> additional costs in, you know, in like you've done, you know, not only architectural and structural, but you've also done mechanical and you've done the energy consulting to make it ready for a, a DOE zero energy home. Right. So there were a lot of steps that went into making that work. And I think it's just a matter of people understanding um, what kind of goes in, into those. And then I think you're right. I mean, I have plans that would, I haven't actually gone to the level that you've done to include the zero energy ready 
paperwork parts of it to, to, you know, to plunk down and say, go right. But, you know, I've done high performance homes. Like you said, there are some people who have done passive homes. You look at the, the unity, uh, plant and they have the unity homes, like those of us doing these zero energy, you know, high efficient houses have to have to group together, uh, maybe and create our own, um, geographical plan set neighborhood that says like, Hey, you want to build here, here, here are 10 plans that, you know, work yeah. for, that link back to, you know, to, to people's sites. Um, if someone exactly. had time to put that together, because, then we're providing all that valuable information to people that say, this is how to do it a little bit better, a little bit more comfortable, a little bit, uh, healthier, a, a, you know, more environmentally friendly. Here's how to do it. Um, where you cut down on your carbon, like whatever your particular, um, I don't want to say interests are, but you know, wh- whatever your value system is like, here is, here's, here's how we provide for that in these geographical areas. Yeah. And the most, the most interest I've gotten is actually, as you were describing the really conscious passive home designers. And honestly, looking at the two systems, I think passive home is a far better, you know, approach, um, than the DOE zero energy ready home program, but the zero energy ready home program is what the rest of the country is going to start following. So, um, a lot of the design things we took into were passive home concepts. Um, and, and, you know, consolidating your, your plumbing in certain areas. And, and, um, you know, we even, there's this funny book on my shelf, but um, cross ventilation and things like that, that are just like really intricate things that take time to look at that are not part of the DOE um, or any of the other codes even really, but they're, they're what you should be doing and what we could be doing and what really just ultimately helps everyone. And um, that's really, what took, I think, a lot of the time is that we tried to make these as, as friendly for every home owner as possible. So we, we even had a, um, a phys- an in-home physical therapist review our plans for, you know, aging in place. And, and it was interesting hearing, you know, have a shower, uh, a full shower stall on the first level, have your laundry on the first level, um, have 36 inch doorways throughout the home. Um, and the majority of them, we even put a bedroom, if not the master, then a guest bedroom on the first floor. Um, because as we were talking about earlier, energy efficiency is based on really having that second story is where you get the most efficient home, but we can't all live on that second story. Um, so the second stories are usually, you know, smaller bedroom spaces and another bathroom for children or guests. Um, and then the last thing we really took into I mean, not the last thing. We also took into like noise and and where your laundry is versus your your head on the pillow at night and things like that. Um, but with the pandemic, we we took all winter putting office spaces into our homes, and so that's one thing we we added as a sort feature is is, is do you have an office space that's got a door or just like a loft, you know, office space and an open office space. Um, there's just so many things to take into account and it's, it's fun. It's really fun. Yeah. And you brought up a good point is a lot of these programs, which have different requirements are not mutually exclusive. Right. And so this is part of what we're trying to do with the pretty good house movement is to kind of marry all of these things. So, so passive house is, is really focused on BTUs per square foot and reducing your energy usage or whatever, but they don't, 
promote as much and, and not that you can't do it as part of the program, but they don't promote as much on, you know, what you build it with. Right. And so they don't care if it's net zero. Um, now, obviously it's a lot easier to get a passive house to net zero because you just need a whole lot less solar, because if you've done all the passive house things correctly, you're just using a lot less of everything else. Um, but you know, the DOE zero energy home could be a passive house could also be, you know, a HERS zero score, you know, an energy star house, you know, they, and in the reverse, it could even burn fossil fuel, which I think is terrible. Yeah. It's really not a bulletproof system. (laughs) It's really not. And so, um, and that's part of the reason why I have certifications in kind of all of them, because I feel like there was something I needed to learn from, from every certification that I've ever taken. You know, the things I learned at Passive House were different than the things that I learned as a HERS rater or energy auditor or BPI analyst, or, you know, all of the other, the, the lead, um, you know, the lead exam that I took way back in 2006 before they split it out and they were like, Hey, our buildings are all totally different. And like, we should have a lead for homes <laughs> and we should have a lead for new construction. And, and so, you know, that all of these programs are great metrics for people to, to use as targets for what they're looking for. Um, but you, you can use them all in conjunction with each other. Right. So you personally said, okay, we're going to make it work for the DOE zero energy home. But we're also going to take into account maybe doing a little bit better, getting it a little bit closer to passive house, thinking about the thermal bridging, thinking about the materials that you're using. So, you know, the the pretty good house movement is now starting to think about the carbon in our buildings, right? So do we have foam free environments? Because you could build a passive house that's filled with spray foam. It will meet BTU requirements. But if you're really concerned about carbon, um, you know, spray foam has a, a big intense carbon footprint. And so maybe you don't want to use that as a material or, you know, I had a client who had a petroleum allergy. So obviously we couldn't use spray foam in their house. So we had to, we had to cut out as much glues and plastics as we could. And so, you know, there, that did not exclude them from, you know, being able to build a passive house or a zero energy house or, or whatever, it just meant that we had to take into other things into consideration, you know, how, how close is the materials? Where is it coming from? If I want to, um, and I have, uh, until this podcast is posted, you will have previously heard from a homeowner in Vermont, um, that I recorded a podcast with. And, um, she had talked about super hyper local, like, what can I get in Vermont? Like what's produced here? What can I use as local materials? And how can I reduce my carbon footprint enough to buy a few things that aren't made here that will make a massive improvement in either the efficiency or the durability of my structure, right? And so you can kind of make those trade-offs and offsets, which to me is the really exciting part of building. It's like, how do I do the best that I can with what I have? And then what do I still need that isn't produced here because geographically, maybe you can't get it. Um, that's been kind of a fun experiment. I build in, in Maine and new England pretty much exclusively. Um, I did a project in Texas a long time ago, but, um, you know, I build, I build here. And so it's fun to listen to people on the BS and beer show who are in different geographical locations, talk about things that are not available to them, that sort of the Northeast takes, 
we take a little bit for granted, right? We have a lot of wood. We have a climate that deals well with wood if you know how to use it. But like I talked to somebody in Colorado and they're, you know, we can't put wood siding on our house. Like it gets baked by the sun for, you know, 300 days of the year. Right. And oh yeah. Right. Like that's, that's totally, (laughs) totally different. Like, right. Or, you know, we would use a a cedar shingle to create a slope for a windowsill. And we had someone from DC say like, do you know how expensive it would be for us to get a cedar shingle to do that? Like what? (laughs) Oh man. Right. Totally didn't think of that. And so it's so fun to hear about different geographical locations and what they do, or, um, you know, I've gotten to know several people in Canada and they do a lot of plaster, like plaster would be ridiculously expensive, but they do a ton of it up there. And they're like, no, that's just how we do it. And (laughs) it's just so fun to hear. And then you want to say, okay, everybody should be looking locally first. Like, what can I get here? What materials can I use? What can I source locally? Um, you know, lumber prices have been crazy. So I love you guys in Vermont. I'm totally jealous, although it probably happens here in Maine too, but, um, you know, you have local sawyers where you can go down and buy lumber from the sawmill, right. And they can control some of their costs because they're smaller operations that, you know, weren't as affected by the manufacturing and, you know, shutdowns of plants and things around here. Um, and so, really fascinating to, to look at what can be bought locally that seemed more expensive at the time. Like, you know, you're a smaller shop, you don't produce as much. So you might have to charge a little bit more for the things that you have, but now in our current environment are some things that are making it so cost-effective to build because they are local and they didn't see some of these 50% cost increases and, Shouldn't you have to pay a premium on something that you have to ship across the country because on a truck? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> For several days. Yeah. <laughs> Isn't that funny? It's full circle. It's che- I loved that phrase that you just said that it's cheaper to build locally in some instances or with local materials in some instances. And I actually listened to your, I think it was one of your, your like little 15 minute info sections where you did carbon zero versus net zero. And I, I loved that because um, I've been describing my plans is designed to be carbon zero, but that's just because they don't, they're, they're not fossil fuel burning. So they're not producing, you know, um, but I didn't take into account the materials. And that's, I think, part of them being friendly for, you know, 35 different states. And we're trying to figure out how to make them work in Canada too, although I don't really know all the building codes very well there yet. Um, but yeah, so so our, our wall sections, we wanted to get into a lot of detail in the beginning. And then it's like, well, it doesn't make sense to do that because everyone has got geographical constraints or choices or, or you know, ways of doing things. Um, so back to contractor friendly is unfortunately, I guess, in that instance, figuring it out in the field. Um, well, figuring yeah. it out in the field <laughs> or choosing materials that are locally available everywhere, which is a little bit harder to do, right? So, I mean, you said you have a two by system with, with zip system. Right. And so we all know Huber woods is big and they sell all over the country. So zip system is something that most people can get a hold of fairly easily. It's something that, you know, 
contractors have sort of adopted as a new system, but it's also, you know, from, from our aspect has to be used correctly in high performance buildings. So it's not a one size fits all projects because, you know, with Zipar, as you're getting into climate zone six, where we are, you have to have 30% of the insulation, you know, to the exterior of the condensing surface in your wall. And it's like zip R6 isn't quite enough, but zip R9 or zip R12 would be right. But then what you do when you do that is extension jams on all of your windows and um, you have a different nailing schedule so that it still meets the shear requirements. And right. So it changes things. And so it does. Um, yeah. So those are the things where it gets a little bit sticky with the pre-designed plan set, like you said, which is hyper-local and figure it out in the field are, are not always the, they might be cost effective by buying it locally, but if they have to figure it out in the field, how much more does it cost them in time in the field to figure out what the system is that works, that will also be a durable system with all of the new products that we have and codes getting more stringent. And that's where it starts to get. And part of the reason why I love to do this podcast and talk to different people is to help. I love that you said contractor friendly, right? Because it doesn't have to be super complicated. It just has to be thoughtful, right? And our, (laughs) our number one priority even if we're trying to push the envelope on efficiency and everything else is to build durable structures, to, to build legacy structures that are like the structures from the 1800s that are still here, you know, (laughs) and not to build disposable housing that five years later is completely rotten because some little detail, which was not an issue in an 1800s farmhouse is a major issue with new building materials that are in tighter houses that, you know, the building dries differently than, a, I mean, no insulation in an 1800s farmhouse that's super breezy and has a, you know, ACH of like 20, like, yeah, it dried out, but that's also really scary in wildfire, uh, territories yeah, because right? your, your hay stuff wall and horse hair. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. So it's, it's, interesting and challenging because building technology is getting more complicated, but it doesn't have to be hard. And, and, and it so, isn't always the answer either. Yeah. It's marrying the two because you can't rely on high efficiency appliances and materials to make your home efficient. And that's another thing that we, we typical, typically will say is that new does not equal energy efficient. I mean, obviously you hope that it does, but like you can have very many like there's plenty of new homes and and buildings being built out there cheaply or um value engineered to be cost effective at the time and they're not going to last and yeah so new does not equal energy efficient and we can't rely on just these materials but we have to be thoughtful with how we use them and um describing your you're describing the zipar system was great um so our plans are designed for climate zones uh 5a through 8 so so that's where we we live. And um, I'm working with uh, panel fabrication companies kind of all over the country. There's a few of them and they have different tools. So like we, we designed around uh, a 
SIPAR system of R12 and then the two by six wall and either rock wall or fiberglass insulation. And, and some of these, these companies are like, well, we just don't own the guns that have nails long enough to do the R12 zip system. So we're, I'm working with them to develop, you know, different ways that works with their prefab methods. Um, and it's neat. It is very neat seeing all the different methods that everybody uses. Yeah. And that brings up another point. I love panelization. I love modular. I love what it can do for the industry. We've talked a lot about even just tiny little zero waste facilities, even maybe that are shared by multiple stick build contractors where they can come, they can build components and they can take them to their sites and they can stand them. I think there's there's a lot to be said for, for pre-building certain parts and pieces. Um, and we've done panelization in a number of different ways over the years, everything from just like open wall framing that comes to the site and gets stood up to, you know, fully insulated windows are in doors are in like, you know, uh, complete systems. And there's, so many cool possibilities and technologies there, but then you look, there are also lots of modular home factories out there. And one of my biggest, um, I was doing a lot of energy consulting, um, for a while. And so I actually was doing, they were trying to get hers ratings on some boxes they were building in a modular factory, which I thought was awesome. Like, this is great. And they had to have an independent person come and, you know, verify it in the factory. And so I walked through and I was like, why aren't you guys offering this like as a package with some of your standard, like you've already got the machines to dense pack, like you're already doing it for these specialty projects that you're building. Like, why aren't you offering it? And he's like, well, nobody wants that, right? Like nobody's asking for that. And so this is, I think, a market uh, situation where I think people don't know to ask for it, right? And I think that in a factory where the upcharge would be much less than what it is when you have to pay a specific contractor to come out to a site to do a job, they could make vast improvements in both uh, developments and you know modular building by offering some of those things in a way that people will understand, right? You can't see the insulation in your house. You don't know how it's done. You don't really care about it so much. I mean, I have had clients who, who love to get into the weeds and want to know all the building science. And I absolutely love that. But, you know, of other clients who they want the best they can, but what they're asking for is comfort and they're asking for healthy indoor environments. And so I think if people knew to ask for that, it would change some of the ways that we do things. And so that's why I talk about this all the time, you know, <laughs> like yeah. I feel like a broken record, but you know, if you, if you don't know what you're getting, you don't know what to ask for. Right. And so they're coming and I'm like, Oh, I just want this. But like, if you realized that the things that are in this are, are, and codes are getting stricter so that some of this stuff doesn't happen as much, um, you know, the mineral wool industry has basically gotten rid of formaldehyde in their products, which is great, but like, you know, there's still formaldehyde in some, in some fiberglass products. And if your fiberglass product isn't, uh, installed with a really great air barrier, it's basically just a filter. So it's not R23 or whatever it says on the bat, if it's got air moving through it. And so, there are all these really interesting components of how we could be doing 
things. And, you know, I, I said on one of the BS and beers, like, why can't we get developers to buy your plan sets? Right. Instead of buying like a houseplans.com or, or any of the other house plans sites. So that's just the one that you know, like everybody knows, but <laughs> instead of just yeah. buying, buying a plan set that they're going to build like a hundred times on some tract of land, why not buy your plan, which is a little bit different. And someone kind of enlightens that is that Developers really are just in the process of subdividing land and selling land. The house is just this thing that they have to do in order to sell it. <laughs> and oh so I'm like, oh. so we do need some legislation to make them better so that they have to buy your plans or my plans to build better houses that make them available for people. But, you know, people don't want to go through the risk of custom designing a house or even buying one of our pre-designed plans because they don't understand it. They want to walk in the door, see the space and decide if they like it. And so I'd love to say that we could make a huge improvement with a developer built housing by people. And there are some um, developers who are really getting on board with this, especially I think in um, some of the 55 plus communities where they're really started starting to think about that aging in place and healthy indoor environments and keeping them in their own homes, extending lifespans and stuff is they've maybe given a little more social thought to what those structures provide versus just you know, four walls and like a, a pretty front facade. So, right, right. And, and if you're in your home that much time, it's important, you know, which side you're getting daylight from um, and, and which, which way really is North. Like, are you going to be in your living room with no daylight? That's probably going to be a little depressing of a space. Um, and the ventilation and the air quality, I think in light of the pandemic has become even more enlightened for people, especially building a home. And, it, and it's great because now they're, asking a question at least. It's like, hey, what is my air quality gonna be? And that's the start. I think it's great. Um, and so it's interesting. So we pretty much every code and standard that I could get my hands on, we designed to the newest version of. And throughout the country, and as you know, like states are picking and choosing what year they're following. And a lot of the country is following older year standards still because it'll be expensive to go up to the newest version. Um, and I feel pretty fortunate in New England. I think we we usually are trying to meet the newer codes, which is great. Um, and so, so that's what we designed to is the newest version that's out there because you know maybe in ten years the rest of the country will be following it. And um, the ventilation requirements for those, uh, as we designed with the twenty four system twenty four seven system, it turns out that the home plans that we have and those requirements ended up about on average a 2.3 hour air change. So in commercial settings, we'll design, um, it's, it, there's, it's different for hospitals and it's different for just a commercial like office building. And so every single room has an air change requirement for your ventilation. And so, um, you know, a, a certain hospital suite might need 12 air changes an hour. Uh, that's, that'd be on the very high end. And then, you know, a typical office space might need four or six air changes an hour. Um, so it was really interesting seeing that the residential codes right now, the highest ones are a 2.3 or like a two, you know, two hour air change, um, which is great. I mean, my house doesn't have any ventilation and it. it was built in the eighties. Um, and I think most don't yet. Um, so it's good that new ones are. <laughs> Yeah. My house is built in the seventies and, um, 
we bought an existing home, right? So you clearly did too. I think this is the the yep. the, the crux of of every the cobbler has no shoes, right? The architects uh, and designers <laughs> homes are are you know like we all we all have bought existing homes with the intention of fixing them up and doing all kinds of things. So our house was built in the seventies. We knew there were several things that were like starting to edge towards end of usable life, whatever. Um, our boiler system was put in in the 90s, right? So it's, you know, getting there and technology is better. And I designed all electric houses, right? That's part of <laughs> part of my thing. And yes. so yeah. my, uh, <laughs> my uh, heat pump installer also does ventilation systems. So I just had him here because we were working on a project. And so I was like, it's time, like now, now is the time for us to start doing this. And so um, and we set it up. So the heat pumps are set up so that the compressor, uh, one head, one compressor, and that they're the shortest run possible. And if we ever had any line losses, we would be able to figure out where we might have a leak and whatever, because, you know, it, it gets complicated, right? As you know, with mechanical, if you've got lines running everywhere, it's like, what happens if you have a pinhole leak and you can't identify where it is? Um, and so, uh, but we also talked about ventilation and I was like, you know, I work from home most days of the week. I have an office. I go there certain times of the week. My office is actually in a, uh, solar subdivision that I did, uh, the house I designed for my landscape architect. We put an office over her garage for us to share. It's got a ventilation system. It's got heat pump. Like it's a super healthy house. Right. So it's like great <laughs> when I go there and I was like, I need this in my home office. Um, and so we talked about ventilation and how to get it to different places and how that's somewhat challenging in existing houses and everything. But, um, Unfortunately, well, I patched a hole in the ceiling, so hopefully it's less now. But when I ran my first <laughs> blower door test, it was 8.5 ACH here. And it was like, oh man, I'm getting ventilation, but I know I'm not getting it from the good places that it should be coming from. Like it's not fresh outdoor air, like the window is open. It's coming from my attic and some other like not so great places. <laughs> and so, yeah. and so it's been this, this fun experiment to trial and test out things here. Cause I feel like we all, we all live in sort of that existing house that we, <laughs> that we, so we, right? exactly. we know what it's like, so we design it better. Um, and you said something earlier that I want to really point out and, and hopefully it's part of how we move it forward is even if the local jurisdiction, especially in pre-designed plan sets, even if your local jurisdiction is not at whatever the newest version of the code is, there's a reason why they keep improving the code. And we as design professionals should all be designing to those as a minimum standard, um, Obviously we're doing, you're doing zero energy homes. I'm doing, you know, uh, solar zero energy, passive house level, high performance homes. We're already kind of past that as far as like the performance of the code anyway. But I just really think that it's so important for us to be designing to the next level, no matter what is that we as an industry can help kind of move that forward and say, yes, the code is less here for X, Y, or Z, but if you're going to go to the point where you've bought a pre-designed or, um, or custom designed plan set, it should be to the most stringent thing that's available right now, because that is best practices for us. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's, that's something that I, I was kind of stunned when I started reading every single code that I could find. And, and the, the zero energy ready one is, is I, you could, it, 
you know, putting solar panels on a house also doesn't make it energy efficient. And um, so like when, when we started designing our homes and, you know, adding some of these, these green energy, you know, passive house and design concepts of all different sorts, um, it was the same with the net zero is, you know, you could still have a fuel oil burner or boiler and it still counts because you have solar panels. And I didn't like that. So we designed for air to water heat pumps and electric backup. And we even included um, the small, very small, actually pellet stove option. So if you wanted to do that instead of the electric backup, um, but we realized, you know, you can't just have the pellet stove because when you're on vacation, it's going to be negative 20 degrees out and you're not going to be there to fill it because that's how vacations in New England and cold climates works. <laughs> right. Um, and then it was hard, like with, with our designs, we did the air to water heat pump with a radiant heating system, which again, for, for air and your home quality, um, and distribution of heat is an ideal system. And it's one one to one, it's one heat pump and and your your system. Um, and that's something that we were looking at is if we were doing like mini splits or cassette units, um, the loads for those, it's hard to find a unit small enough for an efficient space. So you end up putting one in a bedroom, one in the living room, one in you know the office, and and before you know it, you're putting out far too many cooling tons than your home actually needs. Um, and that's, you know, just inherent of, of high thermal values and, and good R values is that you just don't have that heat transfer, both in summer and in winter. And um, yeah, it's, I actually did the number earlier, uh, earlier this week, our average B2 per square foot is 13. So I was pretty happy with how low that is. Because um, you could have it as high as you want really unfortunately it's not yeah that is that is the downside to the to the net zero homes right because and I think there's I'm glad you brought that up because there's a lot of uh talk and discussion around that is if you have enough roof slope or enough yard to put in as many solar panels as you as you need to you can be net zero (laughs) but that doesn't really mean that you're being efficient with the structure that you have and so you know reducing fossil fuels as a means to heat it is a great way reducing fossil fuels as a way for cooking is also great for indoor air quality and then the makeup mechanical systems that you need to have if you have those things um but then really improving the structures that we have so that we're comfortable so that we don't have to have as many solar panels to achieve the same thing you know i love the the uh initial go home uh by geologic that had uh, i think it has like a three foot strip of electric baseboard heat in it and like that's the only thing that it has to heat the whole space right isn't that brilliant that's purely well designed (laughs) it's clearly well designed it's not for everyone because there's spaces the spaces are different you know i think um i think it has a concrete floor which is sometimes a no-go for a lot of people. Um, so, so there are definitely different um, design considerations that you have to take into account. And like we were talking earlier about materials is like, there's there's a, a middle ground to a lot of those things, but like, it's definitely possible to have just a little bit of heat and get to it, you know, and that they don't make mini splits that are, that are small enough. I love the air to water where it's one contained mini split unit and one system. Um, are you doing cooling with that? And do you have to have the things that look like interesting radiators, uh, uh to push <laughs> the cooling load into the spaces? So what we did is we provided the um, 
the tons of cooling required for each of the climate zones uh, within the drawing set. And so we left it up to the owner or the builder if they wanted to add cooling um, and what size you know, cooling unit you should pick. Um, and the reason we did that is up here in Vermont, most people don't have air conditioning and it's not necessarily a choice. And kind of as you described with like porches, you know, you want to build your house, but you really want the porch, maybe you'll put it on the next year uh, just to save a little bit of upfront cost. And um, we did actually look at, and I wasn't confident enough to include it, the cooling via radiant. Because the dew points are so high, I was very worried about condensation within the home. So we didn't go that route. Um, I still believe, you know, uh, a well-placed heat pump would be the best solution. And, and that also is kind of why we provided the, the cooling selection that you would need is because, you know, one person might want to put that, that one cooling unit in the living room and another person might want to put it only in the master bedroom. Um, and that's kind of, you know, an owner's choice. So we didn't want to say, hey, you have to have six heat pumps to cool this place because we want to put one in every place you might want cooling and really oversize it all. <laughs> yeah. Well, and that's exactly it is with mini splits. If you're heating the house with the mini split, you already have way too much cooling than you need for Northern climates like Vermont and Maine and Minnesota, right? Like it was the joke here in Maine that you didn't need cooling. And five years ago, I would have said like, it's just a total waste of money. We're starting to see as climate change is pushing some of the humidity farther North, um, that, you might actually be able to handle it with a dehumidifier and not a cooling system is that it's still only 80 degrees, but it's like a hundred percent humidity. So it feels swampy. Right. And I like that. Yeah. Kind of the joke <laughs> in our Northern climates that we don't know how to deal with cooling because it was never a thing and that we're still really not cooling so much. I mean, we'll have days where it's, where it's, it might be hot, but it, usually the hot is, is the humidity. And so we've, we didn't used to do a lot of dehumidification. Now all of a sudden that's really becoming a thing. It's like, we need to have these dry homes. But when I was in architecture school, um, we had a mechanical engineer who installed a radiant cooling system in our fifth year studio. And it had to be so dry in that room. It was actually in the ceiling, which is opposite of like a lot of them are in the floor systems, but it was in the ceiling and it was so dry in that space to make sure that those things didn't drip on our desks, yeah. that it was, <laughs> it was like nosebleed dry in, in the studio. And in fact, there were, um, there were alarms on the windows that would shut the system down. If you opened the window, because you were introducing an outside source that like could interfere with the system. And so I, I totally understand where you're coming from as far as like the radiant cooling. I think it definitely needs to be handled with a different type of system, but that you're right, a really small mini split can probably cool the whole space. If you have a low load air to water heating system that's radiant, a mini split can, a small one strategically located, like you said, wherever the homeowner is, and this is not one of the figured out in the field things, but um, <laughs> this is one of those customizations that makes a lot of sense, right? Because at our house, my husband would say it has to go in the bedroom. Like 
You can be hot while you're watching TV. That's not a big deal, but you don't want to be hot while you're sleeping, right? You have to be able to sleep. Yeah. But where other people would definitely say like, no, I don't want to be hot while I'm watching TV or or working from home, right? Like I can't be really hot if I'm working from home. I need to to have that air conditioning system like in the office, right? So there could be a really good place and it, it really cools that space, but these low load homes, the door is open. It's going to cool all the spaces. I was just in um, one of my houses that just recently got finished and I walked in and I was like, boy, it's cold in here. And, you know, I was walking around and just the one mini split on the second floor, which is the smallest one we have was on. And, um, the owners actually don't live here yet. And I, I went to see the builder, um, and I was just like, Hey, the heat pump is on over at the new house. I was like, it's freezing in there. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, you could probably turn it off. <laughs> But so, That's great. you know, it's, a, it's, it's a 2000, almost 2000 square foot house. Um, we had to go a little bit bigger because it's in a subdivision and it had to be fully sprinklered. And I don't know if you've had to do this with any of your plans, but sprinkler systems take up a lot of space. 500 gallons of water is a giant tank and it has to be yeah. somewhere where it's not going to freeze. So our mechanical room ended up being, um, larger than we anticipated, but it has a sprinkler tank, a hot water heater. It has the well, well tank. It has a water treatment system. It has two, uh, in phase battery systems that go with the solar system, the electrical panel. I mean, there's just a lot of stuff in this utility room that in low load homes definitely don't, uh, you know, you can often reduce your mechanical spaces. So absolutely. Yeah. We have, so the 16 plants, two of them are designed to be slab on grade and those have mechanical spaces, obviously on the, the, the main living space, the rest of them all have basement designs. And, um, I guess to your point of customization. So we did the customization, you know, options for the air conditioning. We did the same thing for, for basements. So, so we designed, um, some of them, as many as like three different sides of the home lend themselves to a walkout basement. Um, so we designed that as an option because we don't know what the site's going to look like. So if there was an opportunity of the home to have a walkout basement, we provided all of those different options, mm-hmm. um, for people to look at. And, and, you know, that's where we go when it's hot is we just roll down to the basement and live down there for a week. <laughs> yeah. mm-hmm. I will uh, be happy and we'll put up your bio where people can find you, how they can connect with you um, and uh, send them your way to check out plan sets that you've pre-designed because that's definitely when one section is when someone comes to me and um, one of my plan sets doesn't fit what they need. Um, It's great to have other resources of people who are doing it better. So I really appreciate that you've spent so much time being really thoughtful with your plans. And I think that's really the biggest thing is, you know, we need to be thoughtful with design now um, and make that stuff available. So thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciated hearing, uh, how you got to where you are with your plan set. So, so, so important. Thanks for tuning in for season three of the podcast. If you want more information on the guest, check out the show notes. If you want to contact me with a question, a comment, or a suggestion for the show, reach out emily at matramarch.com. You can find me on Instagram, matramarch, or on LinkedIn, Emily Matram. And you can find me on Thursday nights at the BS and Beer Show. So come join us live one week. Until then, stay nerdy.